The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. I first had the pleasure to get to know Art Wolf and his work during my time working at Outdoor Photographer Magazine. You know, to be honest, I didn't have much of an appreciation for photography that was made in the outdoors before working there. I really didn't know how anyone could be interested in taking pictures of a bunch of rocks. But thankfully, I got over such ignorance and discovered not only the true beauty inherent to outdoor photography, but the challenges and the determination required to make exceptional photographs of nature. But Art Wolf does more than make pictures that look nice. He informs and inspires people to care about the world and the wildlife and the people that he photographs, and to realize how connected we are, even city boys like me. I've had the opportunity to interview Art for magazine articles that I've written in the past, but I'm especially pleased to have an opportunity to sit down with him and do nothing more than to talk shop and learn how truly exceptional an artist and a man he is. Well, Art, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a real honor and a pleasure to have a chance to talk to you. It's been a very, very long time since we spoke, but I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to do so again. So welcome. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. You grew up in the Northwest in, in Seattle, and the wild was always an important part of your life. I was wondering, as, as a kid, you, you say that you loved going out there. I mean, if you had any choice, going out into the woods to play was... But I wonder, what was it about that environment and that space that intoxicated you so much? What gave you so much pleasure about being out there? You know, I think that uh, from a very, very early age, um, my family was uh, not very well off financially. So rather than traveling on our vacations, we'd always go to the nearby Cascades or Olympics and we'd go camping. So very early on, from the time I was three, four, five I can remember being in the woods or along a river camping, and that just cemented it for me. I think I had this innate curiosity about everything out there in the forest around me, from hummingbirds that would come through my yard, always looking at robin nests. I mean, everything was kind of connected to nature from a very early point of view, and it never really stopped. I think people that live near nature are more connected to nature you know that 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 comment that you made about curiosity i think that really speaks to to your work because there's so much curiosity and i think that's what drives so much of it and i asked that the initial question because it seems like that going out into that world that there is so much potential for unexpected things for surprises uh, it's not like our sort of urban world where everything is sort of constructed and has its purpose. And it's easy just to sort of to exist in this thing and not really see it. But the natural world offers so much potential for the unexpected. And I think that that seems to me 
part of the appeal that it's had for you as as a subject for a subject matter? Well, absolutely. I mean, I've worked on my staff reports on over 99 books. And those 99 books represent a lot of getting out of bed and having a purpose and a drive. And I think part of that drive is derived from not knowing on any given day whether you're going to cruise into a pod of killer whales that are jumping out of the water or you're going to see something that nobody knew actually existed um, in terms of relationships between various animals. We're constantly learning that animals that from 10 feet away seem like they're completely unconnected, but through the lens of a photographer that's given it a little bit of time, we're seeing connections and we're learning more about the natural world, probably about ourselves every day. And so I think that curiosity drives me. I think a book project gives me focus and a lot of it is the surprises because if everything that I shot was expected but well done, there would be no life, no mystery mm -hmm. to it. And I think the mystery of it is part of the, the allure and part of uh, what keeps me getting out of bed. Yeah. As, an, as an approach, a photographer can either go out with a completely blank slate like uh, Jay Maisel likes going out there with no expectations of what he's going to shoot at all. While other photographers will like to be able to sort of actually draw everything out and have everything sort of visualized in their mind's eye before they actually create the photograph. And it seems like you've explored both me methods and everything in between. It, it is absolutely true. I always have an agenda, but I'm not so driven by that agenda that I'm not also aware of the possible, you know, serendipitous you know, things unexpectedly come your way. You got to seize the moment and not be blind to it. Obviously, over my career, I started with photographing landscapes. I migrated into wildlife as well. Then I started traveling and doing culture. Then I started abstracting culture. And now the last two years, I've been doing a lot of uh, abstracts from the margins of society, you know, what's been abandoned. And so I built an entire curriculum on that. And so I think the unexpected, the serendipity, the evolution of thought and intellect and mind, all is that journey that I will be on until, you know, they plant me or bury me somehow. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of that is being open to the serendipity and uh, the unexpected. I had a TV show that broadcast around the world and Largely, the show was just reacting to spontaneous, unforeseen events. And people loved that immediacy and the honesty of that. They could tell nothing was staged, in other words. But you, you don't, uh, you're not averse to being able to control situations because with some of the stuff that you've done for the human canvas and things like that, you will actively go in there and create the photograph. So you're not so much of a quote unquote purist that you aren't willing to go in there and make changes to the people or the elements that are in the photo in, in the scene in order to make your photograph. Is that right? Well, for the audience that wouldn't be familiar with the human canvas is basically taking the human form and um, painting bodies and hand painting bodies and putting them into elaborate backdrops. And that was a body of work that I'm just going to be completing in a little over a month. 
and then trying to get it installed into a, a fine art museum. And you're absolutely right. That was very storyboarded. That was very pre-planned. And yet, during the course of working on those things, I would be very receptive to some of the models suggesting something that I ought to look at. And it was very much a collaborative experience. So though I went in with storyboards and illustrations of what I wanted to accomplish with a larger camera, often it would take a right turn because of somebody's suggestion. And that was completely embraced. You you incorporated some digital uh, enhancements in in migrations, which was yes. sort of was a controversy for some people who wanted to believe that the images were just completely what you saw and how you captured it in that moment. Even though you in uh, introduction to the book, you explained that with some of the images you had sort of done that. What was yeah. what was what was the lesson for you uh, from that in terms of how you chose to use digital technology uh, subsequently? Well, you know, I uh, explained to the people that I was debating at the time that this was a specific book for a um, to pay homage to artist M.C. Escher. My harshest critics at the time responded by saying, nobody reads the introductions, therefore what you're doing is mischievous. <laughs> I learned that people are often blinded by their own judgment. They are not willing to uh, read Often in the past, historically in the past, there was always kind of a, I would say, hysterical reaction to any shift in culture. In other words, when photography came along, I'm sure painters complained this is the end of painting as we know it. When color came along, black and white photographers probably said the same thing. When the digital came along, I think that people that shot film thought this is the end of photography as we know it. And it's always been met with this kind of Re reaction until it settles down. And I think that I the main le lesson I learned, and it may sound a little bitter, but I, I learned all about yellow journalism, that magazines like U.S. News and World Report and Atlantic Month Monthly that did exposés on it wrote fictitious things. They created mythology trying to nail me on an honesty issue. They were using yellow journalism and falsehoods to make their point. Hmm. So now I, I'm much more skeptical when I read an article in a magazine or a newspaper. I, I won't accept that as truth until it's been verified a number of times. I think society kind of changed. The people that were complaining the most wound up using digital technology. And I appreciate the word enhancement rather than the word manipulation, which inherently implies a negative thing. Yeah, because I think it's it's as with anything a, a tool, and I think people, you know, as they develop, get an appreciation and understanding of of that being just as just for what it is. Um, I think it's I think the only area where it's really sort of a, a key concern is in the area of sort of photojournalism. I mean, I agree. I think that in photojournalism, journalism, there's no place for it. Although, having said that, you know, the best photojournalists were very uh, effective at, you know, using the right angles, compressing a scene, creating their own storyline and their own point of view. So I always argue during the course of the debates over migration that photography really has never been an exact representation of reality. You know, the choice of our films, as you know, and I know you're nodding, so I'm preaching to the uh, choir here, but that was the main issue. And 
I, I haven't used much digital enhancement uh, in terms of adding and basically migrations was in a flock of 100 birds, maybe we'd turn the head of one bird around to complete the pattern. That's where most of the work was done. Um, the most radical was the cover of the book, which was our, our herd of zebras that started with a very large herd to begin with. And we just filled in some holes around it to complete the pattern. But many of these writers would say you just simply took one animal and replicated it a thousand times to create false numbers. And that never happened. Yeah. So it, it was a lesson that people are either in two camps. They either are purists or they're in the world of art. And basically nature and art have a hard time kind of coming together. Yeah. I, I want to get back to you sort of your early beginnings because you got a degree in, in um, painting and in, I think it was art education. That's correct. And, um, when you went out into the field, you were often, you know, working with uh, paints and watercolors. And talk to me about that, how that process of looking at a blank canvas and looking at a scene and trying to sort of translate what you were seeing with your naked eye onto the canvas um, compares to what you do now with a camera. You know, I left being a painter simply because it took a lot of brain cells to conjure up an image or a painting with a blank canvas. And I didn't think that I could uh, sustain that without just demonstrating my skill at putting paint on a paper. In other words, most of what I was painting in college was something I could see in front of me, replete with every branch, or if it was a landscape, every detail. And I wasn't using my imagination as much as just demonstrating skills at laying paint on a paper. My specialty was watercolor, which uh, required a certain amount of skill to really do it because you couldn't really overwork watercolor. Photography early on was basically the same thing. I was applying compositional elements that I was learning in design class to photographic compositions. But as I've evolved, as I've grown older, my work has definitely become much more about the imagination and translating a subject in other words you intentionally using long exposures or very fast exposures and kept capturing something i can't see with my naked eye you know in a five second or a five minute exposure i don't see what that really um i can't preconceive what that really looks like i can only imagine and so i am changing what i'm seeing with the technique i'm using as ca in capturing Conversely, if I take a super fast exposure with water moving, I'm not seeing water like you would at one two thousandth of a second. So in many ways, I'm being much more creative using the camera than I ever was with brush and pigment and paper. Now, tell me, you just used a very inter interesting phrase that you see something and you are translating the subject. Yeah. And I think when people often think about nature or wildlife, they often think of sort of documenting, even even documenting with sort of an artistic eye. But you using the word translating, I think, is really sort of an interesting point of view. Can you explore with that? Explore that yeah. with us a little I, more? I um, well, in fact, I use a lot of historical painters for inspiration. I did a series of very long exposures paying homage to the work of Manet and other impressionist painters because they had a lot of movement in their brush stroke. And so I, this is probably 20 years ago I started doing this 
which was using very long exposures of snow falling, water flowing, birds flying, mammals moving, wherever nature was on the move, intentionally long exposures. Not as I could see with my eye, but what I could imagine a long exposure would translate, in that case, on a piece of slide film. So I was translating movement of animals or nature on the move. It was never something I could see with my naked eye. I could just only, I could only cerebralize this is going to be the effect. And now with high end ISO cameras, I can take such fast shutter speeds with great depth of field, reflections dancing on the water is only a collective series of images to us. But with the click of a camera, I can make all those uh, designs, those reflections into solid, tangible objects. And again, I can't see it. I can only imagine that's what will be the end result. Do you feel that the use of the 35 millimeter camera during during your early years as a photographer really played an, an important part in you being able to explore and experiment in terms of translating the images as opposed to using a large format, medium format or large format camera in the field? I think that myself, Franz Lanting, Jim Brandenburg, Tom Mangelson, Galen Rowell, uh, these photographers were their careers really took off once we had the 35 millimeter as a an effective field camera because the photographers that predated us the westons adams elliot porters used much more static um cameras to capture much more grandeur we were able to kind of follow the on the heels of ernest Hawes and use motion and use the ephemeral changeable situation and capture it on film that would really been difficult for the larger format cameras. I, I actually learned using my father's old four by fives that he had in World War II. He gave those to me and indeed my first uh, years as a photographer was shooting with four by five black and white, you know, the holders using the black cloth, the image was upside down and I was shooting grandeur, but static grandeur from the top of mountains in, in the state of Washington. But once I got the 35 millimeter, I could experiment, I could afford to make mistakes. There wasn't such a commitment to capturing the image. And that really, um, you know, released my bounds and allowed me to move fast and furious. And it just, uh, and I haven't stopped. I may be using larger uh, cameras today, depending on the project, like the human canvas was all medium format capture. But again, in a studio situation. Yeah. You, you mentioned your parents, both of whom were commercial artists. And uh, so they were their own bosses. And, you know, you come up during an age where the, the career of the outdoor wildlife photographer was not considered a, a career path. Right. I mean, you really much created right. it very much for yourself as 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 you also the other photographers that you you mentioned. And I'm wondering how how important was in seeing your parents working independently? How influential was that in you feeling a certain degree of confidence or inspiration to go out and try to make something for yourself that really had not been clearly defined, been defined as clearly by a large group of people as we have today? I, I think you're hitting it right on the head and accurately asking that question. I think that uh, growing up and seeing my father being an independent businessman greatly influenced me 
And on their side, being independent, they didn't really say, well, you should go to college and take business school or join a corporation. You know, that wasn't part of my family's makeup. You know, we were very independent and, and my parents gave me the freedom to pursue whatever I wanted without any outside pressure. I think that maybe uh, young people growing up in the Midwest or uh, like Michigan, where fa the father would go and work in a factory all day, I think it was, again, influential to the children. Well, that may be my future as well. But being, quote, artist, a child of a, a pair of artists was one thing. They saw that I had goals and projects at, from an early age. I think that they knew enough just to leave me alone without mm. trying to interfere in suggesting this or that. They let me find my own way. And I really always have acknowledged that as being instrumental in my development as an artist. Conversations like these with Art Wolf are what keep me inspired to deliver new episodes of The Candid Frame to you. In a world that's filled with so much empty noise, it's wonderful to have a place where a conversation still means something. It's especially important to have a conversation that revolves around something else that I love, photography. If you've listened to my conversations with great photographers like Art Wolf, Mary Ellen Mark, Dan Winters, Joel Meyerowitz, and so many others, you know how unique and special the work we do here is. And we want to continue to bring you more great photographers on the podcast, the website, and our YouTube channel, and we need your help to do it. Through Patreon, you can support the show with regular monthly donations of $2, $5, $10, $25 or more, or anything in between. Your donations of any amount are the means by which we will improve the show and bring you more great conversations with the world's best photographers. Contribute today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame or click on the link in the show notes or on the website at thecandidframe.com. Thanks. What was the most difficult thing about sort of creating this 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 career for yourself early on, uh, especially since there weren't any sort of examples of people out there doing what you were doing exactly in the way that you wanted to do it? Well, you know, people, uh, a lot of people come to me today after a workshop like I've just given and they want the easy answers on how to build a career. And I often respond by saying, why would you want to? You know, if you're happy taking pictures and you've got a good job, stick with a good job and have photography as passion and keep it happy because the minute you try to make a life out of it, added stress comes and maybe frustration. We basically created a career, basically saying we, meaning Franz Lanning and Tom Magelson, and the small group of people created a career of which now there's been tens of thousands of people that have followed. And that's a natural, inevitable thing. You know, there's always a timeline from which we live. I think the challenges were uh, were not frightening to me because we didn't have anything to lose. We mm -hmm. didn't have family or responsibilities. So basically, I thought for the longest time, I'm just trying to do this until I have to get a real job. And lo and behold, it became a real job. But I didn't really feel pressure uh, from that because I was just too young and I didn't really think about 
putting away a nest egg or any of that. It was always, what's the next place I can go? It seems that um, a pivotal moment in your career was your first trip to Tibet. And it was not just uh, an amazing experience for you as a human being traveling to that part of the world, or even because of the photographs that you made there. Tell us about why that was such an important and life-shaping experience for you. Well, it was really easy because I, when I was in high school, you know, I always was also looking at maps. I always studied maps. I knew where countries were. I studied a lot about history, paid attention to the news. And during the 50s and 60s, not a lot of information was coming out of Tibet. It was a big unknown, for instance. Mao's troops went into Tibet right after World War II, and no real information came out of it. And so I joined an Everest expedition, not because I wanted to stand on the summit of the world's highest peak. That wasn't ingrained in me. I was a mountain climber, but I didn't have that dream as a boy. But I did have an innate curiosity what Tibet would be like. Going to an unknown place and seeing what was there was hugely um, interesting to me. And when I went there, I found that I really had an affinity and a connection with the Tibetans. Many of the men on the expedition, and there were 16 of us, got freaked out because they, every one of us were wearing these um, very bright red expedition parkas. And the t we stood out like a sore thumb. And at the time that we arrived on the 27th of March, 1984, it was the Lunar New Year, and all these Tibetans had traveled from all four corners of Tibet to be at the Potala Palace. And every one of us were surrounded by two to 300 people pressing in and touching our clothing and looking at zippers. And quite honestly, most of the men got freaked out from the press of the people. Mm. And I simply put on a wide angle and just waded right in. I had no fear nor uh, irritation at people that were just naturally curious, curious. And so that affected me. And then when I started taking portraits of people that unlikely had ever been photographed before, um, that was a real eye-opening and warm and positive experience to me. So on the way out, I realized that these people were, if we were the first to really come in to Tibet, there would be a lot of people that would follow, and perhaps these people would be changed by the experience. I didn't really think about China really moving in great numbers, but in fact, that's what happened. You know, Lhasa, Tibet is basically a large Chinese city now. But I came out of the Everest expedition with this renewed interest in traveling as far as I could to document and record cultures that would inevitably change in the years to come. So I started going off to the Amazon, to the hill tribes of Asia, the outback of Australia, into the deserts of Africa, and documenting cultures that would more than likely change in the future, and in fact, many have. Many have changed. I remember going to Irianjaya and photographing uh, the Dani people, and all they had as clothing was a penis gourd, and now, if you would go there, they would have shorts and T-shirts and baseball caps. And not that it's changed them forever, but they just don't look like mm -hmm. the Donnie of the past. So I'm glad I have those historical photos. 
How does it make you feel to to see that that change? Because there are people who look at the corrupting influences of of the Western world, but to some extent, um, the influences of the Western world has have have also helped these communities. I, I think of uh, the the uh, in um, Brazil and uh, how technology has really helped them to be defenders of their own culture and their own environment with the encroachment of all this development and stuff like that. So where do you sort of stand in terms of the influence of Western culture and the changes it's resulted, both both good and bad? Well, I mean, it is both good and bad. You're absolutely right. People are living longer lives. They got cleaner water, dysentery, and, and, and disease has been lessened in the quote-unquote quote, third world or technologically primitive societies. I'm also really unhappy with the fact that the world's every year becoming more and more homogenized. And I rue the day that we wake up that no matter where you travel on the earth, you can have a double uh, shot uh, Starbucks right at the end of your fingers. So I, you know, cultures have always evolved. And I can remember being in Samburu uh, tribes in northern Kenya, and they were incorporating plastic little uh, whirly wigs in their hairstyle and modern buttons and things that were uh, uh, part of our society, they would instantly incorporate into their designs. And it only says that cultures have never been static. They've always embraced things. And who am I to say that they're better off being traditional people wearing skins or nothing at all. Mm-hmm. But I am a romantic and I do much more per, uh, uh, appreciate. I'll, in, in a week and a half, I'll be in uh, Tanzania in a very remote Maasai village, meaning hardly any tourists would ever come their way. And I love photographing traditional people. Conversely, if you go into Nairobi, everybody's wearing suits and ties, just like Western culture. It is, it's a quandary because it's inevitable that change comes. And I keep going to more and more remote places. What I have done with film crews in the past is forbid anybody from giving anything out. In other words, mm-hmm. no clothing gets left behind, no residue from our society gets left behind. It only accelerates the change. And you know, we offer food that they would normally eat as exchange, but we don't give clothes. And I don't want anybody to know to know that I've been there after I've gone. I don't want to accelerate the change, in other words. Yeah. The influence of painting has really influenced a lot of your work in terms of, you know, the patterns and, and line and shape and form. And it seems like your, your your work has gone through cycles where you've implemented all those skills that you learned as a painter uh, in your younger years. And it's, it seems like it's it's constantly evolving, sort of reinventing itself every time. How, how much of that is a direct result, not so much of an, of an, an intentionality of using, using those, those, those ideas, and so much more about the fact that you're working on a project and that naturally just evolves from whatever you're focusing on? I think that I keep looking back into my archive for re-inspiration. I also draw from a lot of other people's work. I think uh, I have in this room that I'm sitting, there's probably a thousand books and there are books of painters, there are books of photographers, there are travel books. I am a sponge for influence from other people 
And I also influence a lot of other people. That's how cultures evolve. So I draw inspiration from everywhere, including my own history, because the, and we'll take the human canvas as an example. I've done two books on cultures alone. One was called Endangered People. Another was called Tribes. And in Tribes and Endangered People was looking at tribal designs and customs and dance and all those things, which I immediately brought into um, the human canvas. And the human canvas may spur yet another book down the road. I just love that reworking themes. And I don't believe I have a style because I think the range of my subjects are so broad from, you know, spray painted back alleys in Chinatown, Bangkok to absolutely pristine wilderness and all the uh, things in between are subjects for my camera and my imagination. So though I don't think I have a style, I, what I try to do is shoot clean, designed, you know, well, well put together compositions. And that would be true whether it's an abstract, a cultural photo, a wildlife shot, or a landscape. You've resisted being identified as a type of photographer, like say a wildlife photographer or a nature photographer. Um, as you said, you you like to create images that are aesthetically pleasing, but that aren't defined by whatever strictures or, or, or in definitions that sort of define this particular genre of, of, of photography. Why is that important to you? Why do you, do you feel like you want to be seen as a photographer rather than a specific type of photographer? Well, I think I get that from my uh, painting instructors where they would look at my work and just say, kid, you got to, you know, push yourself and explore other avenues. Otherwise you'll be in a rut. You'll just, you'll probably graduate from college, but you won't amount to much. And I, what they were basically doing was saying, open up your imagination. And in fact, that had a profound effect on me. I, always wanted to explore things that I hadn't photographed. I've tra I travel now eight months out of the year going all over the earth. And I feel very lucky to have the drive and the physical, physical abil abilities to do that. But it was really from those instructors that basically challenged me to think outside of the box, to not just fall back on whatever I was comfortable doing, and I think the analogy also in terms of a writer's block, I was always fearful that I would run out of ideas for the camera because many of the people I knew when I first started out ph photographing, especially wildlife, I knew people that were only interesting in photographing birds. And when they ran out of inspiration, they just basically left taking pictures. Mm -hmm. They moved on to something else. And I never wanted to do that. I always wanted to keep pushing my subject matter and expanding my subject matter so that I would always have a subject to shoot. You know, you've published over 80 books. Each of them is focused on a particular project. And do you, when you take on a project and you're deciding that you're going to eventually put it together into a book, do you see that each one presents to you a particular and unique challenge and that's part of what helps keep you inspired and, and, and energized about doing what you do as a photographer? 
Well, first and foremost, I think I'm the hardest on myself. I, I'm my own harshest critic, which is fine within moderation because I'm not a miserable person. In other words, there are some people that are always so unhappy with what they're doing, they're never satisfied. I get very satisfied when a book is well done. And again, the books are a reason to get out of bed. I, I could never work this hard if I thought and if I was only feeding a stock agency hoping that they would sell my work. If that was the motivation, I surely would be doing something different today. So the idea of creating a book, challenging myself to come up with new ways of saying, maybe presenting a familiar subject is a great challenge to have. And inspiring people with the work, you know, educating, informing people, uplifting people with the work. I tend not to shoot denigration, though I work in very impoverished areas and I photograph extraordinarily poor people, I'd rather showcase the spirit of those people than poverty. So I'm not a photojournalist, I'm not showing degradation, I'm showing spirit and beauty in some of the worst places on the earth. That's how I'm wired to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm very positive, I have a lot of energy and I'm also aware that a lot of people that are photojournalists get so emotionally connected to their subjects, they often are despondent. And so I'm very protective of my psychology. I love uplifting people through the work I do. And I often choose books that I think are going to inspire people and educate people about other people around the world. You just mentioned that you, you're traveling like eight months out of the year and uh, you're going to be celebrating a birthday soon. And, I, and from what I've heard, you, you don't actively like work out. You don't go to a gym and or anything uh, like that. And I'm going, okay, how does he do it? Because I'm not even close to your age. And sometimes I'm exhausted by some of the things that I have to do. What do you attribute, you know, this almost boundless energy that you have to be able to go out there and uh, do that? The word is passion. Really, it's passion. If you look at a playwright, if you look at a, a any kind of performer, anybody that has a humanity, whether it's dance, writing, poetry, any discipline that they have found their calling that delivers life-sustaining passion, then you have boundless energy and and happiness, basically. I pop, My classes that I teach are populated by extremely successful women and men in their given profession. And now they are on the cusp of retiring or they've just retired and they're looking for passion. They're looking to find happiness outside of their lives that was devoted to being lawyers or doctors or whatever it may have been. And I like, I'm like an evangelist on stage because I'm a living example of somebody that found a passion early in my life mm-hmm. that have, has lived my life that way. And I have no complaints. I don't have the perfect life. I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. I don't have a dog. don't have cats. I don't have vacations. But I celebrate what I do have, and that is passion, drive, intellect, and curiosity. So I don't complain. Mm-hmm. I don't have what everybody else has, and nor would most people want to live the lifestyle I have. But passion is the key. You'll live a longer life because of it. Hopefully so, yeah. Education is a big part of what you do. In your books, in your workshops, uh, in the television shows. 
how does that fit into this this vision that you have for your life, especially um, considering that you know, considering the work that you're doing, educating others is necess- doesn't necessarily have to be a part of it. I, I, I think it does, and I think um, I think writers write for other people. You know, performers perform for their audience. A photographer photographs for his audience. We don't take our pictures and covet and hide them away. We want to show what we do. Every photographer that's ever taken a class lives to show other people what they're doing. So I think it's the communication of that, and I will call that education. So I live to inspire other people. I have a great life, and it's self-fulfilling, but it's really self-fulfilling because I know I'm touching other lives through the work I do, and that's the key. When I'm on stage, like I was just in uh, Hamburg, Germany last Friday giving a talk, I had 400 people in my audience, and they're hanging on every word I'm saying, But the, and they're seeing the photos, and they're ebullient. At the end of it, they're just sky high, and that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. You know, I love the moment when I'm out in the field and I'm photographing something, but I know when I bring it to a bigger audience and talk about it, it affects a lot of people. And so teaching that, communicating that, inspiring other people to follow their heart and follow their passion makes happier people out there. And I think when you affect one other person, they're going to affect the people around them. Now, we live at stressful times, stressful times. We can get totally crushed by what just happened yesterday in Orlando, or we can see the beauty and knowing that most people are just like ourselves. Mm. 95% of people on the planet, I believe, would come to your rescue or my rescue if they saw that we stumbled or that we were in injured. And I think that's the message I try to get across because eight months of world travel times 40 years, can you imagine? I've been in every, every, almost every community around the planet and most people are welcoming and genuine and nice to me. That gets lost in the world headlines. You have a book that's going to be coming out later on in the year. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, about that? Yeah, anyway, I, it could be a book on the, about the the stories from the field where we take a, a photo or one or two photos that have a compelling story, and that may be the book. Okay, <laughs> that may be the book that we're talking but about. But that's interesting we're, that you have multiple books go, going out, you know, working well, on first time. You time. say that I've done eighty books, and my staff will say ninety nine, and maybe part of the discrepancy. And I don't have notches on my bedpost. Yeah, I don't keep track of how many miles I travel. I'm not one of those people that ticked things off, but my staff said 99 books, and that probably includes children books and foreign imprints. But regardless, I've been working for 40 years, but probably the first 10 years I didn't do books. So if there's even 80 books, means there's been lots of years where four, five, or six books have come out. Wow. And one of the things, and this is a diversion from your your question, is I don't, I have a... I don't have a lot of talents. I know what I can do well. Um, I'm really forgetful at my age. And I also, it takes me two or three times hearing a name before I got it. But what I am really good at is working on multiple projects and dividing them in my mind, even in the moment. I can shoot this shot and knowing that will feed that book, turn around, shoot another shot that's completely different and know that that will go in there. I'm really good at compartmentalizing projects so I can then work on 
three, four, five books at one time. This is even more amazing to me that 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 you have so much stuff going on, right? You got the you have the books, you have the fine art uh, projects, the prints, the stock sales, the workshops, and you're traveling eight months out of the year. And to me, I just go, okay. How does he do this? Obviously, you mentioned that you have a staff of people that help you to do a, a, a lot of this stuff, but that is a, an incredible act of juggling, nevertheless. How do you sort of manage to to be able to dedicate as much time as you do with your photography, but still make sure that the boat stays afloat at the same time? I'm really organized. <laughs> <laughs> I, if you were to walk through my house, you wouldn't see pair of socks laying on the floor. You wouldn't see dishes out on the counter. You wouldn't see anything. I'm completely compulsive, type A, right-handed, Virgo, all those things. You know, um, I clear the clutter in my house, in my garden, so that I can see directly the, the end result of what I want. And so that's part of it. I make lists of all the things I need to be doing. I'm compulsively making lists checking them off. So I'm that type A, a knowing person that everybody has in their life. I am that person, but it does enable me to get a lot of things accomplished. And I don't know, I feel like at times I'm racing my to my own death, but I'm having a ball racing to my own death. You know, one of the things that I really appreciate about, about the life that you do have is not so much what you do with your photography and everything associated with it, but it's like, in the midst of all the stuff that you do, you spend a good amount of time in your home in your bonsai garden. And I, I do, and I'm looking out across this laptop at the garden, and later on today I'll get into these trees. When I, you know, I've been just flying forever this year, and when I come home, the staff doesn't interfere with me. They know I need one day in the garden, reconnecting with the land, getting dirt under my fingernails, pruning the pine trees, I, I have an extraordinarily beautiful, uplifting garden, which I share with uh, people. You know, the, uh, every other year I'm on the garden tour and there's 2,500 people that will come through the garden and look at it. So again, I, I love, you know, inspiring people with what I do. There's been a lot of people that have started working on their own gardens based on what they've seen I've done. And I love that. I just love to influence people. And the garden, to me, is my psychiatrist. It's kept me sane over the mm. years. Working the land, being out there in nature, has kept me somewhat grounded. That's great. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone. Someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, I think um, David Dushaman, who just lives directly north of me in Vancouver, is a kindred spirit. I mean, the way he sees nature and culture and lives his life in the art end of nature photography, I really admire. And so he would definitely be one of them. I could name 20 people, actually right off the top of my head. Well, Dave is a great, uh, a great guy, and I've interviewed him a couple of times on the show, but he's a wonderful recommendation. Yeah, I think he's articulate and he's cerebral and he pushes, you know, he pushes himself in great directions as well. Well, Art, thank you so much for joining me this morning. It was a real, real pleasure to have a chance to speak with you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. 
Thanks to Art Wolf for his time and generosity. You can find out more about Art and his work by visiting his website at artwolf.com. Please remember that you do make a big difference in our show. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. It helps increase our ranking and creates greater awareness of the show. Thanks to Poeta Nasitur for her recent five-star review. You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash thecandidframe or you'll find a link in the show notes and on the Candid Frame website. Thanks to all who have recently contributed to the show, including Linda Hacker, Henrik Albertson, and Paul Davis. We appreciate you guys so much. Thank you. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. Links for each can be found on the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.